ready. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Thank you, Ryan and Sawyer, for that great introduction. Indeed, this is the Outstanding Ohioan Show. I believe Ohio and the people of Ohio have an incredible, wide-ranging, and proud impact that needs to be shared with the world. And it's always been that way throughout the history of the United States. The job of the Outstanding Ohioans podcast is to share these remarkable success stories with an intelligent and curious audience. The Outstanding Ohioans podcast connects to highly accomplished people in all walks of life and shares their secrets to success. And today we've got another great success story to share with you. Thank you for listening. And please leave your comments on iTunes, Stitcher, or the blog posts. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Hi, this is Ron Soliker. Thank you for tuning in to episode 44 of the Outstanding Ohioans show. In this episode, we're going to do part two of our interview with the Edison Birthplace Museum. Board members Robert Wheeler, John Blakeman, Don Gaffel, and Director Lois Wolf. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the Thomas Edison episode. Several of you mentioned his persistence and he didn't call them failures. He just found different ways to do things. Let's be clear. He didn't do this just throwing stuff up against the wall. He was very diligent with his note-taking. Can someone speak to his notebooks and how he logged all that information? He has over 5 million pages, and Rutgers University has been going through them for the past 25 years, and we have a number of their books here. But that also is just touching back on Tesla real quick. Tesla is a big unknown, and he is... He doesn't have notes. Edison is extremely well documented. Yeah. He he had things stolen when he was young, and he said, I'm never letting that happen again, so he became just copious note taker. So he's just, everything he did is documented. But Tesla is a very vague and kind of mysterious, kind of cool guy, because you don't really know what he did. But uh, I'm sorry to bring that back on that. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, about five million pages of, of notes. Yeah. But that again is, is his wizardness, shall we say, or his leadership at Menlo, Menlo Park. Uh, yes, if you go to the Ford Museum, you'll see uh, that Menlo Park Museum, how wonderful it was that Henry Ford put that in there. You can, I will say this. I've, I've walked through there just as I've walked through the birthplace. Because of what I know of the man, I can feel his spirit. I can feel how things happen. At Menlo Park, from time to time, he would get his R&D staff together. He would have consultations. Said, okay, guys, here's what we're working on. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me your problems. Let's share things back and forth. And yes, he's copying that. He's taking a record of all of this. Um, that's what research and development labs do. It's directed, open-ended, collaborative re research and there is so much of that, you must document it, and you must keep track of it. I ponder in my mind, what would Thomas Alva Edison be doing today? If he, I was born in 1947. Thomas Alva Edison was born a century before, in 1847. If uh, Thomas Alva Edison were born today, would he be our Stephen Jobs or whatever? Yes, there was something. What would Thomas Alva Edison be doing with the incipient technologies that we have today. 
his mind and with his ability to get groups of people together to work collaboratively, who knows what would happen. Again, as we say, he was the right man at the right time uh, and made things happen phenomenally. But again, because of this record keeping, because of his perception, again, I said that at the beginning, he saw the world in two ways. Synoptically, S-Y-N, meaning together. He saw things together, how they connected. But unlike others, he saw them panoptically, wide. He could see things beyond the horizon, imagine things. And he had a unique ability to, to do it, put those together, knowing also that he couldn't do it himself. He brought the right people in, made teams of chemists and physicists and um, so forth. I, I'll mention this. He, um, Don Gavell mentioned that his first invention, the stock ticker, didn't work. One of the things he came up with, the idea was, I'm not going to invent something, put all of my resources and effort in for a failure. This He did something that was way ahead of his time. He invented the modern focus group. He would put together, bring in, you would ask people in, um, in New Jersey, old people, just get people around the table. If I invented this, do you think anyone would want it? Would you want it? He checked out markets before he did that. That's entire, that's way beyond invention. But again, it's this business of a panoptic view of how things work. The man was a genius, other than just heating up uh, light in a vacuum to make uh, photons floating off. Uh, in, in fact, John, his, his first invention was the electric vote recorder yes. uh, that he tried to uh, sell to Congress. And they didn't want to have immediate feedback. So they told him, no, they didn't right. want it. It you know, would have recorded the vote immediately. And they said no. And, and so his, that first thing was, didn't, didn't go. And one of the reasons he was working on sound recording, two things. One, um, he knew that there was a market uh, for stenography, you, that businessmen could talk or, or secretaries could talk and record what they were saying. Then they could come back and make a, um, uh, a, a typed copy of it. But he also found out from his focus groups and so forth that girls and women wanted doll babies that could say a few words. Sure, that was a phenomenal market, and he figured that out. And did he eventually do that? Yes, he actually eventually made some doll babies, dolls that actually spoke, not very well, not by modern standards. It, but it was a, it was a huge uh, failure. Yeah, the, the oh, dolls yeah. sounded very creepy. They were beautifully made, but they were they were really heavy, and and they had a crank in their backs, um, and he had a little miniature cylinder in there. Uh, that had recorded someone's voice. I wish I had that ready. Uh, and it sounded so creepy that <laughs> children uh, would buy them. So yes. that I mean, he, yeah. his intent was very good. Yes, but the whole he was not able to execute that no, into, uh, not, into a market not, product. Not for that. But one. that didn't keep him then from taking those. Uh, that forced him to go other ways and so forth. And now we have sound recording. But again, a man who just was a man of tremendous vision, and insight. You spoke to this point, and, and I wanted to go back to it. He wasn't a solitary genius. He seemed to have a great leadership. Talk about 
the kinds of people that he wanted in his research and development, and as well as his ability to to be part of mastermind groups with Henry Ford, those yeah, the, kind of people. Yeah, you know, the employees that he had, you know, had to be almost just like him. Okay, you basically you had to live, you had to work. You know, it was your entire life. You know, they they were called the Insomnia Squad. <laughs> those were his. That was his group of employees, and they did everything for him because of his leadership, because he was right beside him, and he was the one, you know, that was working 17, 18 hours a day, you know, and not, you know, asking employees to do more, you know, than himself. So they admired him, you know, for that. He was leading them, you know, to be part of all of the things, you know, that he done. So they were definitely, you know, it was a team approach in terms of putting this stuff together. And the other thing, you know, is he surrounded himself with those, you know, with those great employees. And then also, you know, some of his, you know, best friends, especially like Harvey Firestone and, and Henry Ford and so forth that were at the same time doing the same things you know, that he was. Henry Ford got his start. You know, that's why Ford admired Edison. He was a young employee of Thomas Edison in his electric plant, you know, in Detroit when he was 18 years old. So it was Edison that later encouraged Ford, you know, to produce the automobile. Now Ford came back and repaid, you know, a lot of, of Edison in later years because you know, Ford, you know, did make a lot of money. And so they helped Edison when he got in trouble, you know, financially, you know, many times it was people like Ford and Firestone, you know, that, that helped him out, you know, along the way. But the other thing, you know, that I want to tell you about, about Edison and the people that he surrounded himself with, and he wasn't, you know, just looking, you know, for... Uh, for for a brilliant, you know, science graduate from one of the universities or something like that. That's not exactly what he was, you know, looking for. He was looking for somebody that was a true intellectual person that was interested in everything. And that's what he said about himself. You know, he was interested just as much about what was happening in basically in all walks of, of life and society. And that's why I think, you know, that so many of the things he did, you know, for humankind, you know, in terms of the thing, that's, that's what he was all about. So when he hired, you know, employees, he would give them quizzes and he would give them as many questions about geography, for example, as he would about science you know, in terms of that they had to answer. So they they had to be well-rounded, you know, people. And not to do. Just really, and like John do. said, yeah, not to do. Let me just insert. You know, yeah. That's exactly why NASA was such a, such a success. Vera von Braun came back, and we began the space program. But it was a jet propulsion laboratory in Pasadena where this team of researchers came together. How do you make rockets work? It was exactly that same sort of thing. It's not always the brightest 
guy. It's not always the guy who has the best equations. It's the team that could do as Edison's team could do. Could they work collaboratively? Were they working hard at the same time? That's why NASA worked. That's why NASA continues to work. And in fact, Stephen Jobs and so forth, there isn't a, 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 there isn't a research and development laboratory that succeeds that doesn't do what Thomas Alva Edison did in those respects. And, and again, if you, if you think of some of the things that happened to him in his life, yes. uh, when he had his industrial complex, there was a huge fire. Mm -hmm. Don, do you remember when that was? Yeah, that was about 1917. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you about that because that was during the heydays of the film and so forth. And it was nitrate film. And so it was very flammable. And so when it started, you know, in one of the, the labs, it burned the whole thing down. And so while this was happening, this is the other side of Thomas Edison that I like. You know, that I got from my grandfather uh, also, along with Edison, is you never cry over spilt milk, okay? And so when that, you know, was blazed, was going, he called Mina and he said, come on down on the curb and sit with me and watch this. You'll never see another sight like this as long <laughs> as you live, okay? And the next day or two, you know, after they were going through, you know, the rubble, because it burned basically to the ground, everything. And he walked in, in the rubble, and he picked up, there was a picture of him under glass. And it was broken and stuff, where it broke from the flames of the fire. And he picked the picture up, and he took the picture out of from under the glass, and he wrote and inscribed on it, never touched me. And so he <laughs> then... You know, he started, you know, a day or two later and just reconstructed the thing and they were right back in business again. So that's another one of the examples of, other than his experiments, that how he responds to failure, if you call it, or whatever, you know. That's it. You know, you don't, you don't whine about, you know, something that didn't work. You just go on with the next thing. Well, the and, issues with yeah. his iron ore separation yeah. and, and with cement houses. Yeah. They were all good ideas. Great ideas. But just... Uh, the just, market had changed. The, the market, market well, was there. Cement yeah. houses, I'm not sure where the market was at yeah. all, ever. Well, that, no, that was important. That was a good... That was really a good concept. I mean, that was the... Well, they were the first prefabricated, right. you know, basically, you know... They'd make a home and put up all of the, the molds and so forth and, and do it with a pouring of a single pouring. They would do all of the walls and, you know, leaving, leave the plumbing vents and stuff in it. And they were very successful. Well, the reason for that you was know. because this was just at a time in the first quarter of, of the last century when America was running out of wood. Our forests were being taken out. We're our, lots of people coming from Europe. We got to build more houses. There's going to be no resource to do it. Edison could see four concrete houses are going to work. Yeah. Well, uh, then we formed the Forest Service, and we had better forest conservation for the Forest Service. But again, the man was seeing beyond the horizon. Yeah. And the main thing was for doing those is he wanted to to be able to produce something that would be affordable, you know, for the average person, so that people could own their own homes. And they were done. They were done pretty cheaply. And one of the downfalls is that 
he, he had too much control over them so that the people that were building them, he limited their profit, you know, to such a small margin that there wasn't, you know, a great, you know, demand for, for production of them. I have to interject right here again. I think I said this before. We're telling the entire Thomas Alva Edison story. Should anyone drive 50 or 100 miles or 200 miles to the wonderful town of Milan, Ohio, and take a tour through the Edison birthplace? It's a wonderful period house, Greek revival of the 1840s, architecturally perfect. But after you heard just anything that we've said here, walk through there, again, as I said, you will feel the man. You will understand the spirit. You will, under, you will feel his mother. He'll, his entire family is there. His history is palpable. You touch American history in a way that neither textbooks nor digital recordings as this can do. Uh, and, of course, this was the wonderful sight that his wife had in creating this to inspire youth and Americans to do the kinds of things that Thomas Albert Edison did. It's, um, it's not just a little wonderful cottage, another wonderful town of Milan, Ohio. It's a wonderful chapter in the American story, which continues. Well, let's, let's talk about that now. Let's, let's talk about the history of the museum itself and, and how it came about. His dad built the house in 1841. Moved his family here. Thomas was born in 47. Canal is on its starting to collapse or starting to fail. That and was they its peak here, and then it went down from there. 47 <laughs> was the peak, and by 54, it's starting it's starting its decline. Uh, railroads are coming closer, it's lots of reasons, so they moved to Fort here in Michigan. The, fad, the house is sold. His wife, I'm sorry, his sister, Marion, buys it back in 1892. Four. Six. Six. Ninety-four, maybe. About 1894. The tour guides know this better. <laughs> um, she lives here for a while. Other family members live here for a while. Um, his wife, Mina, and his daughter, Madeline, open it as... He, he buys the house from his sister in 1906. So he's he has the house in his possession for his whole life. And then uh, his his wife and his daughter want the house and the, and of course he died in 1931 so this is 1944 uh when Simeon Ogden I think no no Meta his Mary. his cousin uh Meta was uh, had died and so his wife Mina and his daughter Madeline decided that they wanted this house to become a museum of inspiration for people so, they wanted this to be different than other Edison museums. They wanted this to be the families talking about. This isn't a, a, a guy who descends on a beam of light from heaven and changes the earth. No, he's a man. He's a boy. He's a father. He's a husband. He has problems. He has issues. He has successes. He's a person like you and me. But the way he overcomes this and the way he changes the world is what they want to be the inspiration. They want to show him that he is, he's a person. I mean, you know, just 
like us. But uh, there are things in his character that, that make him stand out differently than, than most people. The, the house itself is very solidly built um, of brick. It's built into the hill. So from the front, it looks like a very tiny home. But when you go around back, there are three levels mm. to the house. And so when you come in the side door, you're in the sitting room. And across from you is a bench. And it is his mother's bench. Now, we don't know if it was originally in the home. Probably not. Came down from Port Huron. Or from um, Marion. Vienna. It, was it Marion's? Well, just as far as I know, anything that was in Port Huron was given to Marion. Right. First. Okay. And that's why anyway, it's here. That bench uh, used to, it, it's a plain bench with no sides. The bench used to have rockers on it and a little um, uh, thing uh, that held a baby so that you could rock and do sewing or reading and the baby would be safe. So that's that's one of the special things that we have. Uh, when you come into that space, you'll see a wonderful primitive portrait of his mother and portraits um, that are more f photographs of his his father and and other relatives. And then on the wall next to the room where he was born is a copied page of the Bible uh, that the Edison family had that shows that Edison was born in 1847. And when you look into the room of where he was born, it's, again, there are there is no original furniture in there, but it is set up uh, very simply uh, with a rope bed and uh, a, um, a side um, uh, table and, and a towel rack um, and a simple lamp, and, and that was it. And he was born there because there was, had been a stove in the sitting room, and that was the warmest place or warmest bedroom in the house. Uh, and he was born on a very cold day, very much like this, in February in the early morning. And then the museum itself, so it's in the mid mid nineteen forties that it opens and forty seven. It opened on his hundredth birthday. On his hundredth birthday. Yes. Nineteen fifty two they start the association, which is the board of trustees okay. to oversee it. And in nineteen sixty five it's made a national historic landmark. Now, that doesn't mean that it receives any money from any government entity. And in fact, we don't. And that's the big misconception about the birthplace itself, that we are somehow supported by some government. Mm -hmm. And we're not. We're um, a private corporation. So, so we struggle a little bit with that. So an individual, a school group, or a group of people that are interested, they call you Lois. What What's available for a group to do at the museum? A school group is, is pretty good. We have a size limit of about 40 kids at a time because the rooms are small. 
and we can, with the guides, uh, divide the kids up and also have a group in um, the area of the gift shop here where we have phonographs and uh, examples of his movie making. So we do that and uh, they tell the story a little, the, the guides tell the story a little differently for kids. Mm-hmm. If it's an older group, we make them know that we are not handicap accessible. It's an historic home. It has two narrow flights of stairs. And so that uh, is, the, is the issue that older people want to know. Are mm-hmm. we handicap accessible? Mm-hmm. And it's a 45-minute tour uh, with narration. Well, with a with a guide, and each one of the guides has a little bit different perspective. Unfortunately, we we have we lost. Not that he died; he's still alive. Our oldest guide, who's in his early nineties, hmm. and he had his own wonderful full tour of the house. We now also have a man who is a director, an actor, and a former teacher, and actually has portrayed Edison, just did down in Sanibel Island in Florida. And so now we have a resident Edison when we need him. And he's, he's, a, very, he's a very good guide also. We have had guides who were as young. This last summer we had a 15-year-old guide, and all the way up to 90 years old. So it's quite a diversity. I started guiding here when I was 17. <laughs> and we're going to get him back again, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this might be a tough question to answer. Maybe not. I've got two children, five years old and three years old. What kind of, what kind of environment can I create you know, I'm not necessarily. I'm not saying I want them to become Thomas Edison, but what can I do to nurture them to enjoy things Thomas Edison did, such as asking questions, the, the great sense of curiosity, being a problem solver. He was a big fan of Montessori learning, mm-hmm. um, and Montessori is a great way to learn. He's just let the kids go and they they need to explore. Sometimes you need to guide them. After three days, you need to move away from the sandbox. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the big things for Edison, for me, that I learned, and I don't know if this is applicable to your question, is the women around him in his life who allow him to become the person he becomes, starting with, and probably most important, is his mother, who gives him the confidence, the tenacity, and the keeps him, he stays curious. And um, I don't think he's told, I don't like in Montessori or anything, I don't think you're ever told you're wrong, that's not the way to do it. You, you just keep guiding them in, in ways, let them develop and explore their own world as they want. But you have to, of course, give them some push this way or push that way, push this way. Mm-hmm. Right, if things are safe or dangerous, that's that's pretty much all. When he was right. When he was here too... In that era, there were roads built uh, of planks 
to keep the dust off the wagons. And so he, he took little scraps of lumber and made little plank roads. He, he saw in everyday things what he needed. And with children, provide basic things for them to explore on their own. The things that are not as helpful to children. I, I have two daughters. And for, for, for one thing, um, I never, I never took them in a daughter's way or a son's way that they the things that they ex that explored with were creative for everybody. So they had wooden blocks. So they had a gigantic, which I still have amount of, um, logos or uh, Legos and, and they had airplanes and they had um, um, things from the farm. They, it was, I didn't have them, uh, I didn't limit them by, by being a girl. And so that applies with, with Thomas Edison, his explorations. Now, of course, he was a man of his time. So his view of the female sex would have been a little bit different. But to allow children to, and to ask questions. In, in fact, there is one story about Thomas Edison being down. Apparently he was allowed to roam quite a bit when he was here because he would be down with the, the shipbuilders and the sailors. I'm sure he learned some interesting things from them. <laughs> and, and, but he would always ask them questions, questions, yeah. questions. And he yeah. came home uh, to his father when he couldn't get his questions answered there. And his father said, well, I don't know. And he, he said right back, well, why don't you know? Yeah. And so that was, and I don't think his father beat him for that. I, I, you know, I think his father realized that this was a child who had unending search for knowledge. And that's, I'm, I'm a former teacher. So, and I'm, I'm a former teacher of, um, gifted children. So I know that all children learn in different ways. And so providing a big spectrum of things for your kids to do, again, keeping them safe, but allow them to, mm -hmm. to spread out in the way that their interest goes. Conventional formal education, both in Edison's time and today, is to teach kids how things are. If you know that, you're educated. Thomas Alva Edison wanted to know how things could be and how things might be. Well, that's the difference. And how things work. I, that was that, always his... Yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. But how might it be beyond that? How could it be? How might it be? Uh, go beyond what we know. Go beyond the conventional constraints of, of, of education. Um, and I would suggest that's what you want to in, 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 uh, implore on your daughters. Here's how it is now. But tell me, how could it be such and such? How could it be this way or that way? Mm -hmm. When I grew up, um, I was born in 57. 
Uh, we didn't have a TV till I was 12. My parents made sure there was no TV in the house. I, I had surgery and then I needed something to entertain me for a while. Um, when I was little, I had art books like Dali and Surrealism and all kinds of other Renaissance art books and modern art. Um, and all, access to all kinds of music, blues to Japanese koto music. Um, as I got older and could read, they bought me an encyclopedia. Only child, sit at home, no TV, you read the encyclopedia. That's probably not applicable today, because um, I don't think they even make an <laughs> print an encyclopedia. It's in your hand now. It's, it's right, called right. the iPhone. It's the yeah, wiki. Um, limiting technology somewhat would be very important, mm -hmm. I think, but yet knowing how to, to work with it. Mm -hmm. and, and how there was such an amazing amount of information. As as uh, Don's grandson is is playing with our our um, iPad Mini outside, but he's doing a math game, mm -hmm. or was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it you know it's always discovery. It's yeah. kind of, and if you're interested, they pick that up. If you're not interested, they'll they'll put that away. So I think with your children, you. You you need to reflect whatever they're interested in is is something that you know you um, what's the word you, uh, you 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 say yes to you yes I did this when I was teaching and I think I got it from reading Thomas Alva Edison it was his kind of sort of thing I would encourage my kids in biology to ask a question ask me a question that neither you nor I know but a reasonable one. One that could be answered. And I would give kids extra credit. I said, that's the kind of question. And I would promote that. And I had wonderfully had girls who would do that. They would say, let's, let's see if we can get screwball this Mr. Blakeman up on this one. Here's one that's really way out. Well, now, if it was just a plain screwball question, then there's nothing. But no, they got it. And I would say, that's a five-pointer. You got five extra credits for your next test. That's like going from B to an A. And so are these kids sitting there the whole time thinking about questions that need to be answered about what we're talking about? And, um, and they knew there's one-point questions. They were just kind of there. But you had the Thomas Alva Edison kind of questions, the five or tenors, uh, that really could tell. The kids were thinking panoptically and synoptically, bringing things together, saying, how could this be? Why is it this way? And oftentimes, I would not know, and then I'd have to go back and tell them. Um, but that's the point. En encourage them to do the, the wrong thing. And conventional education, what? Ask the right question, get the right answer. No, I want you to ask the wrong question, for which there are no answers right now. You think in the cloud, not in the cubicle. That's why our tour guides, too, when there are questions that they can't answer, they don't, we've gone over this so many times, they <laughs> don't make anything up. They'll say, I don't know, but we'll come back and find out. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the attitude, too. Well, let's let's find out. If if you don't know as a parent, well, let's, let's find out. I had this little book... Uh, when I was a kid that started out, you know, with a question like, why was, why is the sky blue? And I thought, wow, this, 
you know, this is answers my my question. So nice, better, it, it could be a parent who would help the child find out the answer to that question. Yeah. An encourager, a cheerleader, and a uh, um, sort of a cuddler. If the listeners want to know, learn more about the Birthplace Museum, how can they go about doing that? We have a website, uh, www.tomedison.tomedison. And we also have... Dot org. Dot org. Sorry. And I was going two ways at once. And we have a Facebook page that is under our association name. So it's uh, Thomas Edison Birthplace Association. Edison Birthplace Association. Edison Birthplace Association. And we put up relevant things from day to day on the Facebook page. So you'll know more about people that he worked with. Um, Louis Latimer, this being Black History Month, Louis Latimer uh, was a black man who who was a a very um, interesting worker and and did some um, inventing in his own right and exploring. And so we've highlighted uh, people people who worked for Edison as well as other issues that come up. And we'll put all those in the show notes so the audience can get those as well. And phone number? 419-499-2135. Any last thoughts share with the audience? We've covered it. Yeah, We've covered, We've covered it. <laughs> Thank um, you for, yes. for sharing the yeah. Edison story you know, yeah. with, uh, with all Ohioans. Yeah. I think he, he invents way more things than anybody realizes. And oh, by the way, he is extremely well read in literature. You think of him as a white coated, yeah. you know, scientist, but no, his his literature, geography, history, uh, is, his knowledge is phenomenal across the board. Huge fan of Thomas Paine, as he got that from his father. Mm-hmm. We are always surprised at the numbers of people who come from around the world as well as traveling across the United States, see our sign on the turnpike and come in. We just the other day had a little guy in here um, whose parents named him Edison. A couple of months ago, we had a little baby whose parents named him Edison, and they brought the the, the kids here to, to the birthplace. So there are still lots of connections, and we, we try to encourage those and... Uh, and when appropriate, uh, we put we put a picture up on Facebook too, so everybody can enjoy that. Just little inventions that you may not know about. Yes, please. Uh, wax paper that comes from the uh, electric pen, which is the first mimeograph machines. That electric pen turns into a tattoo gun with a little bit of evolution. Alkaline batteries. People don't associate him with that. Concrete houses. Magnetic ore separators. Uh, it's just, it's not just, people think of them with the light bulb, and that's just one small bit. Mm-hmm. Um, artificial rubber out of goldenrod, you know, mm-hmm. just 
pretty phenomenal. And then later his industries do household products, um, coffee makers, toasters, all kinds of things hmm. that have the Edison name. First patent in electronics. He has the Edison bulb, puts another filament in it. You put a, a voltage on it, and it changes the way the other filament works. The Edison effect. Yeah. Yep. yeah. First patent in electronics. So mm -hmm. without him, you'd be using Facebook in the dark. <laughs> yeah. We'd have Facebook? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> and you'll see a lot of those things if you come to the Edison Museum. Okay. Well, listeners, I encourage you to check out this gem in Milan, Ohio just west of Cleveland. Thank you for turning into the show, and thank you to all the wonderful guests today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. <laughs>